morning, everyone. We are in one of our favorite times of the year, Holy Week, Passion Week to some. And along with your notes today, we gave you um, an outline of the week, very, very brief, not a lot of detail, but um, it, it just gives you a place to start your prayers for the for the week, thanking God for what he did for us, the activities of Jesus. <coughs> Excuse me. Let's look to the screen and let's begin today with our tradition of praying the Lord's Prayer together. Let's pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive them that trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory forever and ever. Amen. <clears throat> Thank you so much. We are going to focus on what sounds like an Easter message instead of a Palm Sunday message. But um, we, we are dedicating this week um, in all that we do to an extra level of clarity. Let me tell you what I believe has been impressed on my heart for several weeks now. <coughs> Excuse me. As we move toward the holy season, I am... Um, it's, it's hard to articulate. It's, it's, it's not hard to articulate. It's hard to articulate the meaning and the depth of what I'm feeling. But I believe that the Lord, uh, I think it's grown, the sense has grown as we've done our prayer for the city. I think it's grown as we've done our prayer for the nation and for the church. And I believe that God is about to do something very significant in this respect, I believe that God is about to pour something out on us that is a little bit of a surprise. Now, we've prayed for him to pour out his gifts and his graces and his power and miracles, and we believe in all of those things. But the more I've prayed, the more I have a very strong sense. I find myself just weeping at odd times. And um, as, I, as I pray about this, and I tell you what I believe God is about to do in preparation for the days ahead, I believe that God is about to pour out upon us supernaturally an overwhelming sense of his love. Of how, that, I know that sounds hokey. It sounds like something off the Hallmark Channel, but... I really do believe that. I believe that there is going to be in the hearts of the people, we have such a works mentality. We're praying for an outpouring of stuff that God you're doing and that we can do and we can be a part of. Nothing wrong with those things. <clears throat> but I truly believe that in ways unexpected and in ways unprecedented, God is going to pour out his love into our hearts and we're going to be overwhelmed by how much he loves us. I really believe that. And the next takeaway from that is that not only are we going to, um, mm, 
Not only are we going to stand amazed at how much He loves us, but we are going to be amazed at how love flows from us to our neighbors. We have, we have given it a couple of years now of trying this, that, and the other to make everything get right. And nothing wrong with some of the things we've embraced. But I want to tell you, that there's only two times in Scripture that the Lord said that the world will know the love of God and the message of the gospel is true. One mention is found in Zechariah, where on that day that's coming, when Christ shall appear, literally appear, Zechariah says that God will pour out on the nation of Israel a spirit of supplication and grace. So it's something God pours out, supplication, grace, an ability to hear, an ability to see, and an ability to pour back out our heart toward Him. And on that day, Israel will look upon Messiah, the one that has been rejected, and they will mourn for Him as for an only child. In other words, you think of what it would be like if you only had one child and that child were taken away, your mourning would be so intense and would be tied up with the idea of hopelessness or the end of all things. So he's going to give them a sense of what they've lost, but he's also going to give them a sense of that one they lost is coming to recover. And on that day, in one day, Israel as a nation uh, shall be saved. That's the first mention. Now we pray for that day and we wait for that day. But the second time Jesus said, the world will know, he said, it's when they see the way you love each other. They, they will know you are Christians by your love. They will be convinced of the truth by love. And loved ones, I believe the day is coming when we're going to have an outpouring of signs and wonders. I believe the day is coming when we're going to have an outpouring of anointed preaching like never before. But I want you to know that I believe next on God's agenda is an outpouring of his love and an awareness of his love that we've not hitherto experienced. Maybe a moment here, maybe a moment there, but we are about to be inundated with a sense of love and a sense of care and a sense of purpose. And God will use that, God will use that to show other people the grace of God. And he is going to show us that the battle before us, whether it's the battle for the church in America, <coughs> around the world, whether it's the battle for our nation, our neighborhoods or our family, God is going to show us that the battle is not to the weapons of this flesh, but to the weapons of the spirit and love wins. Love wins. I don't mean that. There's a book out that says love wins. It says everybody's going to get saved. Nobody's going to hell. Uh, it's what we like to call heresy. It's not true. <laughs> and and I, admire, I admire the heart of the writer, though I disagree. But love really does win. And it, it means that it's not by might and it's not by power, but it's by my spirit, says the Lord. Now, <clears throat> I want to talk to you today about the phrase, just as he said. On resurrection, uh, after the resurrection, there's a passage in Matthew 28 
that sets the context for us. The angel said to the women, do not be afraid for I know that you are looking for Jesus who has been crucified. He is not here for he has risen just as he said. Now this is, this is something that they could not process. This is something that Jesus had explained to them. And we read it and say, well, of course, he said he was going to be raised from the dead. But loved ones, we have the advantage of 2,000 years of the gospel proclamation to look back on. This was brand new territory for them. And we're going to find that it was a staggeringly unbelievable concept that Jesus was risen from the dead. But the angel said this, he says, now he's risen just as he said. Now what that does is that ratchets the words of Jesus up to another level. This is not something you've just discovered. This is not something you've just figured out. This is not even something you can believe without the help of God Almighty. But he said it just as he said, he's risen from the dead. Come, see the place where he was lying and go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he's going ahead of you to Galilee. There you will see him. And then he says what seems to be unnecessary. Behold, I've told you. I've told you. It's what he said, and I'm telling you too. And it's obvious that in the early burgeoning moments of Easter, when you read the whole story, there was a fight for faith. There was a fight to believe. It wasn't something that just automatically happened. Next Sunday, we're going to show up in our Easter best, and some are going to go to, to um, 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 sunrise services. And we're going to say, we knew it, we knew it, we know it, we got it. But I want today for you to understand what happened on that first Easter throughout that first Passion Week. I, I think the best way to illustrate it is to go to a story that foreshadows Easter, but is not about Easter. And you don't need to turn to it, but it's John chapter 11. I find in John chapter 11... An amazing story of Jesus, some of his closest friends, Mary and Martha, and of course their brother had died. There's another story toward the end of the book where Jesus appears to the disciples uh, several days after the resurrection. They don't know what to do. Peter says, I'm going fishing. Some say that he was saying, I, listen, I'm going back to the old life. I don't know what to do anymore. And Jesus shows up. They've been fishing all night. They catch no fishes. 153 fish are caught when he tells them to cast the net on the other side. John, or, um, excuse me, Peter comes into shore realizing that the last time he saw the Lord, he had betrayed him. He had denied him. And, and Peter is already carrying this guilt and this shame. He told in front of all the other disciples, you guys may deny him, but I never will. And Jesus kept asking him a question. And if you interpret Jesus from our carnal heart, it's like Jesus is rubbing it in his, you know, his face in it. Do you love me, Peter? Yes, Lord, I love you. Really? Well, if this is the way you show love, I'd hate to see the way you show hatred. Do you love me? I love you, Lord. Really? No, that's not contextually or that's not remotely right. 
But loved ones, in moments of the most critical straits, Jesus asked questions that reveal the importance of where he's trying to go with something. And we can, we can wax eloquent answering a question, but it's not a question, uh, I mean, it's not an answer to the right question. Um, <clears throat> you know, the, I heard a friend of mine talk about his wife was out of town, he was a single dad, and he figured it would be better to cook the only thing he could cook, spaghetti and meatballs, at home for the kids rather than try to wrangle four or five kids into a restaurant by himself. So he has prepared his meatballs and spaghetti, which nobody really likes. But um, <clears throat> it's, it's like when Ramona used to go out of town, I, I, she'd leave stuff for me to cook. And the kids, were, I mean, they were elementary school. Oh, Dad, let us take you out. You know, because they knew it could be pre-made and I still have the ability to transform it, to morph it into something else. Well, he's dishing out the spaghetti and his little girl, little, little five-year-old girl, I think it was, asked him a question that you don't ask your daddy. You ask your mama and mama's not there and he's trying to hold everything together. And she asked him the question, the five-year-old puts her hands to her chest and she says, Daddy, is this what makes me a lady? And then she made it worse. She put her hand in her lap. She said, or is this what makes me a lady? And the man said, where are you woman to his wife? And he said, I, you know, we, we have an agreement. We never don't answer questions. And he said, and I went to about a seven or eight minute explanation of how girls and boys are different and what happens in your body. And he said, I went far deeper than I needed to go. And he said, I looked at her in exasperation. I said, honey, do you understand? And she looked at him and said, yes, daddy, but you haven't answered my question. And he said, what do you mean? She said, my napkin. Do ladies put it here or do they put it in their lap? Because mama had taught her there's two places to put your napkin. One makes you a lady, one makes you a gentleman. He didn't know if he should thank God or cuss. Uh, loved ones, I want to tell you, sometimes in scripture, we think Jesus is disconnected. We think he doesn't understand what's going on when it's us that don't understand what's going on. See, Peter, Jesus is saying, do you love me? And Peter, Peter says, he's, he's shaming me. He's embarrassing me. I said, I love you more than anybody. And, you know, the other guys are going to hear this. And finally, the Bible says that Peter got so exasperated and so embarrassed. He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And when he reached that point, Jesus stopped asking the question because Jesus wasn't trying to embarrass him. Jesus knew that if Peter loved him, then everything else would fall in place. You know, when I used to do marriage counseling, I don't, I don't do much anymore, but, uh, uh, we, we have other people that do it and do such a wonderful job with it. And we have 
professional counselors that help us and do such a wonderful job. But when I would do marriage counseling, the first thing I would ask almost always is, do you love your wife or do you love your husband? And sometimes they'd say, no, absolutely not. They've taken my love away. Or they might, and, and that's, that's, you know that you've got to start here with that, and it's very hard to deal with. Sometimes they'll say something like, well, I used to, but not anymore. Well, that's just a glimmer of hope. Sometimes they'll say, I, 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 I know that I love them, but I really don't like them, and I need help. And that gives you a little more something to work with. But you know what I found, and it was pretty well true through all the years of pastoral ministry, no matter what they've been through, if they say something like this, yes, I love him, or I love her, but I'm mad at her. If that love is there, then I think we have a fighting chance to save what has been almost irreparably damaged. And Jesus knows that Peter, uh, if he had retained his love, if he, if he still loved the Lord, then everything else that God was going to require Peter would fall into place. Now, that's kind of broad. That's kind of wide, you know, and, and uh, we know Peter turned out well. But in John 11, we won't turn to that passage today, but Lazarus died um, Jesus knew that he died, had gotten word that he died, and Jesus waited till the fourth day to go. He didn't have to wait. He could have come earlier. He could have gotten there much quicker. And he arrived on the fourth day, and the scripture says that Martha went out to see him. And basically, the first thing she does is say, Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. Now, Mary's going to do essentially the same thing, the other sister, when she comes out. Um, <clears throat> Lord, if you had not been here, my brother would not have died. Now, we don't know if that was a statement of faith. We don't know if, if they were saying, Lord, we know you can do all things. And if you had been here, we know you could have handled this. We, we, we know that. And we know that, you know, you're, you're able to help. You see the end from the beginning. Even the neighbors were saying, couldn't the man who healed the blind and opened their eyes, couldn't he have healed Lazarus and made him live? But Jesus asked the girls the same question. He, he doesn't go into an explanation of why he was late. Because, you know, I said it could be a statement of faith. It could have been a statement of blame. They could have said, our brother would still be living if you had come when we needed you to be here. If you had not in warped around, you could have come and saved our brother. So there's somewhere between a, a, a resignation of faith, Lord, you could have stopped this, we know that, and blame, you should have stopped this, and you didn't. We don't know where they were, and we gotta be careful on those girls uh, because they were very special to Jesus and we can't see people's hearts. Now, the way we talk, you think we can, but we really can't see people's hearts. But I love what Jesus did. He didn't give an explanation. He didn't give a rebuke. He did something. He stated basic doctrine. And this is what he said to them. Do you believe this? And I think it was Martha missed it. I think it was Martha. I may have them backwards. Missed it totally. 
She said, Lord, I know my brother's going to be raised on the last day. I know that when we live right, we, we will live even if we die. We will. She, she had her orthodoxy lined up. She had her doctrine lined up. But she said, Jesus kept talking about a broader thing, a concept of the kingdom. He kept taking her to a deeper place. Same thing with Mary. And Jesus asked them both, do you believe this? Loved ones, I want you to understand, um, I believe one of the reasons that God is about to pour out his love upon us in an unprecedented way is because he is moving us to a place where our faith is no longer dependent on God's actions. We don't say any longer, if you had done this, I'd still serve you. If you had done this, I'd still be in church. If you had handled this differently. Loved ones, it's not that God is an ogre. It's not that he um, is offended by questions. But in the moment of your disappointment with him, in the moment of your difficulty with life, in the moment when something has happened that defies description or defies understanding, do you have the ability to say, I still believe this? I still believe this. That's why there is such a, a flood of blasphemy and heresy all over the internet. People are finding that they can help Jesus out by making him more understandable. They can make the Bible more accessible by taking out parts that are objectionable. And loved ones, I want to tell you, the average Christian is bullied into a corner by people who think they know more than they really know. And I've said it before, I love the History Channel. That's some great stuff on the History Channel. But some of you gotta quit getting your theology from the History Channel. And you need to grow up and learn that just because somebody has a doctor before their name, that doesn't make them a scholar. Even if they, their doctorate is in biblical studies, that doesn't mean they're right. And, and we have such a lack of biblical teaching in our churches that people are running for one of two reasons to secular voices to, to frame their faith. And it's either because they're not getting biblical teaching in the church or they don't like the biblical teaching they're getting in the church and they will leave places to go to places that are forbidden, deep, dark places that uh, are in the book of Revelation are, are referred to as the deep things of Satan. And loved ones, God is moving his church to the place where even when the unexplainable, like the death of Lazarus, has occurred, even the heartbreaking has occurred, Jesus didn't come when he could have. Why did Jesus wait four days? <coughs> I don't really know. It could be that God is being true to form, and sometimes our God will let your situation get into the worst possible place before he shows up. And that's not because he likes to dangle you over the fire. It's because he knows some lessons will only be learned in the deep place. And some values will only be cherished 
when you've been at a place of total devastation. I guarantee you this, every disappointment, as one person said, I think it was N.T. Wright, every disappointment is really God's appointment. It's God working in us. It's God strengthening us. Maybe God has to move in us to get us to the place where there's absolutely no other place to find help. the, The Bible does not teach this, not at all. But some Jewish teachers, some rabbis taught that the spirit, when we die, the spirit hovers around the body for three days. And that uh, only on the fourth day was the spirit gone to its eternal destiny. So a lot of, uh, uh, I say a lot, at least some groups of the Jewish community felt like the, the, the spirit stayed around for three days. Maybe Jesus said, I'm going to wait till the fourth day so that when I call Lazarus forth, they're not going to say, Ooh, he was, he, he, he resuscitated him. His spirit was still by and the sound of Jesus just kind of, kind of woke him up. No, Jesus said, I want you to know that Bible doctrine doesn't seem to be helping you. I want you to know that this garbage you got off the early Judean internet is not helping at all. The, the, the three day period of, of, of maybe is gone. It's hopeless. And his own sister says the indelicate. She says, Lord, please don't call him forward. It's been four days. He is stinking. He's corruption. I don't want him to come forth like that. I don't want to see him like that. Uh, You know, it's like the monkey's paw. Don't let him come forth. I don't know why he did it. But whatever the reason, Jesus used it to look at those sisters and say, do you believe this? Not, not what you were saying, not what your neighbors are saying. Do you believe what I've taught you? Now, with that in mind, as we move into this day of amazing manifestation of God's love, I think one of the things that we need to allow God to do in us is to stop being bullied by pseudo-intellectuals and pseudo-scholars and pseudo-saints and pseudo-pastors that say we figured out what the Bible really meant, we figured out what Jesus really meant, we figured out who Jesus really is, and we're entering a day when the thing that matters is do you believe what Jesus said? Do you love Jesus in spite of your failure? Christianity is very simple. I believe him and I love him. I believe him and I love him. And we have got to move past the place where we are robbed of that confidence by our circumstances. We've got to move to the place where we are no longer robbed of that confidence by by people that are mean-spirited and accusing and cursing and blasphemous. And you, you... I tell you, the church acts like we don't have the truth. The church acts like if somebody's smarter than us or thinks they are, then we have been defeated by them and by default, uh, we're wrong and they're right. And loved ones, we need a holy boldness. We need to stand up. You say, well, I, I, I need to be able to explain everything. We do need to be able to give reason for the hope that lies within us. We need to be able to do that. But loved ones, you'll never get past loving him and believing him in order to do that. Because you, the, Christians sometimes fall into the trap of trying to prove the unprovable. Yeah. 
It doesn't mean it's not real. It's just unprovable. You know, somebody says, prove God exists. Well, prove God doesn't exist. You can't prove it. You say, well, he, I prayed and he didn't answer. Well, maybe he said no. <laughs> now, no, we've got to move to a place where Christianity is no longer a social construct. Christianity is no longer a mental affirmation. We've got to move to the point where no matter what Justin is saying, disappointed, if, if I'm Jesus, disappointed in me, angry at me, un, not understanding me, I have to be able to say, but Justin, do you believe what I've told you? And Justin's got to say, yes, I believe. In fact, the way it's, way it's shaking out here, it looks like if, if Justin would straighten up, we'd all be okay. That's what it looks like. <laughs> no matter how Justin may disappoint you or me or his wife, at the heart of the matter is, Justin, do you love? Do you love me? Do you love Jesus? Do you love your wife? So you, you understand what I'm saying? We have, we have taken the greatest thing in the world and it's called faith and belief and love and we have somehow made it susceptible to what Hollywood says to what false teachers say to what churches say that aren't worthy to have the name of Christ in the name of their church and I want to tell you we need to we need to we need to understand that we are not to be intimidated by the darkness of this world. We need to turn on the light. Amen. Now, I want to tell you something else, and I'm, I'm going to hurry. That doesn't always help, but I am going to hurry. There are, there are four things that I think are absolutely non-negotiable facts about the gospel. Now, we may differ on baptism, some say you sprinkle, some say you immerse, some say you baptize infants, some say no, you have to be an adult. We may differ on our eschatology. We may be mid-trib, post-trib, pre-trib. We, we may differ on how we do communion. Is, is communion transubstantiation or is communion consubstantiation or is communion just a symbolic remembrance? There, there are dozens of places where we can have differing opinions and still love one another and still go to heaven together. But I, I, as a grace preacher, as a preacher that says we're saved by grace, not by works, I find myself sometimes being forced into a situation where it's almost like we have to say, well, if they say they're saved, you know, grace says they're saved. I'm going to tell you, there's a lot of people that call on the name of Jesus that are not saved. There's a lot of people that go to a false Jesus. There's a lot of people that go to a false gospel. And I, I, I don't want to be judgmental. I don't want to be harsh. But there needs to be a renewal of what does it mean to be saved and what, what are the non-negotiables in terms of the gospel. And I think there are four of them. And you say, Pastor, can you afford to be so adamant? Well, let's listen to what Paul said. He said, um, my wording, he's not afraid to put all of his eggs in one basket. 
When I was a little kid, um, my great aunt would let us deliver uh, eggs to houses around their house. Every house you could see belonged to family members. So go take Uncle Ray some eggs. Go take Uncle Wade some eggs. Go take Edward some eggs. You know, so, and when, when the grandkids were there, it might be six or eight of us that wanted to deliver the eggs. Well, there might be a two or three dozen eggs. There was a basket big enough to hold them all, but she would you know, cut off a milk carton or say, give us all a little holder. And we'd all have three or four, five, six eggs. And we would go and deliver them. Count The oldest cousin would count out to whoever got how many eggs. And you're right with a bunch of kids. Sometimes the eggs were dropped. Sometimes the eggs were damaged. I remember a, a cousin of mine that was a little older. He had just been studying World War II. I didn't know what he meant, but one of us dropped our basket and it was a disaster and he said, Nagasaki, Nagasaki. It was, he was trying to say, they're all gone. They're all demolished. But I asked my dad about it. I said, Why, we could, this could be easier. We could just put them all in one basket. And he said, son, haven't you ever heard of don't put your eggs in one basket? Well, I'd heard that, and, but I didn't know what it meant. And he explained to me, he said, eggs are easy to break and somebody can stumble and trip. So you put your eggs in several baskets. So if one of you guys fall and loses all of his eggs, you still got all these other eggs. And I thought, well, that makes sense. That was wise. But it's not wise in regard to the gospel. It's, it's okay when you're delivering eggs. But it's not wise in regard to the gospel. Paul was not afraid to put all of his eggs in one basket. He was not afraid to state something that was frightening. He was not afraid to state something that seemed intimidating to the weak faith. If there is no, this is in your notes, 1 Corinthians 15. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. See, he didn't say, well, it's metaphorical. Jesus may not have been raised, but he's raised in our hearts. And we have warm feelings toward him. No, he said, if there's no resurrection from the dead, then Jesus hasn't been raised. And if Jesus has not been raised, listen to this. What preacher would say this? Then our preaching is in vain. He says, what we're preaching is vain. It's totally useless if this isn't true about the resurrection. And he says, not only is our preaching in vain, but what you are all holding to, that's in vain too. For if the dead are not raised, then not even Christ has been raised. And listen to this, how would this be for a membership campaign? And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. And you are still loaded down with your sins. And then he goes even deeper. And also those who have fallen asleep in Christ, that baby that was stillborn, that child that died, that godly parent that has gone by way of the grave that we're all saying we'll see on the other side. He said, they are not on the other side. They're a worm fest. You say, pastor, that's harsh. That's what he's saying. He says, they have perished. He said, if we have hoped in Christ only in this life, we are of all people 
most to be pitied. We're the most to be pitied if we have put all of our eggs in this idea of resurrection, the Bible story of Jesus. If it's not true, we are the most pitiful lot on planet earth. He didn't try to remodel the message. He didn't try to deconstruct then reconstruct. He, he said, he said, if what we have received is not true, then we are in over our heads in hopelessness and misery. He put all of his eggs in one basket and I can see him holding up his basket saying, but the fact is Christ has been raised from the dead. And he is the first fruits of those who are asleep. In other words, he says, not only is Christ raised from the dead, but everyone that has fallen asleep in Christ is going to, are going to be raised just like he was. And when we go by way of the grave, we'll be raised as he was as well. Now, I, I, th that's the first part of this message. I want you to know, you are not going to stand very likely. You're not going to stand. Your faith is not going to stand. Your trust is not going to stand unless you reach this point where you say, I may not be able to understand all that's happened. I may not understand the ways of God, but I believe, I believe you say, well, that's just, that's just the weak mind's way out. No, it's very, very accurate. There are things that are beyond me. There are things that I cannot explain. Do you know what Paul said to the Corinthians? He said, listen, I has not seen. Nobody has ever seen it. Ear has not heard. Nobody's ever even heard it. He says, neither has it even entered into your heart. This isn't something you could dream up on your best days. Even LSD can't take you there. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard. Neither has it entered into your remotest thoughts. What God has prepared for those that love him. And I'm supposed to understand everything about God? I don't think so. I'm supposed to be able to pass judgment on what he does or doesn't do, or if he does it early or if he does it late? I don't think so. No, the, 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 the most blatant idolatry in the world is those that are angry at God because he's not acting according to their script. Every once in a while, I'll get a letter from a skeptic and I, or, or an email. And, you know, they, they'll ask questions, prove this, prove that. And I said, well, the first thing I need to know is, are you an honest skeptic or a dishonest skeptic? And then they write back and say, what do you mean an honest skeptic? An honest skeptic has a legitimate question that can be answered and they'll take the evidence. A dishonest skeptic, you just want to fight. And I don't want to fight. I said, I've, I've got all my time spent kissing people. I don't, I'm not going to spend my time fighting. So if you're an honest skeptic, this is something I would suggest. If you're a dishonest skeptic, then I said, you're wasting my time and yours. 
you know, I, I get them regularly. I, I would just like to have an honest, ongoing discussion. And every time I've tried to enter into an honest, ongoing discussion, it sucks the life out of me because they're not interested in an honest, they're just interested in ongoing. And loved ones, I'm, I'm coming to the point, please don't misunderstand me. We need to always have time for people. We need to always answer questions. Peter said to give, be able to give reason for the hope that lies within you. I, I don't mean we, we don't have to give an answer or don't have to give an account. But I'm saying that if we're not careful, we will catch ourselves getting involved in arguments with people who cannot be persuaded when we need to be led by the Spirit to people who are genuinely hungry. And we need to stop being on the defensive. Here are the four non-negotiable facts. Number one, and, and, and by the way, let me say this. The gospel does not work without these four facts. It, it does not work without these four facts. Just like I wouldn't sit on this chair with three legs. I mean, I, I might could manage it. Till I got excited, then I'm going down. If I only had two legs, I'm, I'm not going to be able to sit. One leg, I'm certainly not going to be able to sit. I need four legs. And this is, a, this is a death trap unless I have the four legs in place. Number one, I'll hurry. Number one, I need a Savior. I need a Savior. Now, a lot of times we, we, we think we can convince people and, that they need a Savior until the Holy Spirit shows them that they are guilty of sin. Nobody's going to believe they need a Savior because our tendency is to compare ourselves to somebody else and we can always find somebody worse than us. <laughs> always. I've got a pass to heaven. All I have to do is look in the newspaper, search the internet, and I can find a scumbag. And I can say, compared to him, call me St. Stephen. <laughs> That's why Jesus said, when the Holy Spirit comes, he will convince the world about the truth concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. The world cannot understand what sin is. The world cannot understand what righteousness is. The world cannot come to terms with the reality of justice, judgment rather, Unless the Holy Spirit touches. That's why we preach, but we don't rely on the intellect of the pastor. That's why we teach, but we don't rely on the persuasing power, persuasive powers of the teacher. We realize that from the youngest child to the oldest grandma and grandpa, unless the Holy Spirit opens our eyes, and we'll talk more about this in just a minute, we cannot understand. So we need we're not going to be able to evangelize and there's no need for the gospel until a person realizes I need a savior. Isaiah put it this way. He was pierced for our offenses. He was crushed for our wrongdoings. The punishment for our well-being was laid upon him and by his wounds we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the wrongdoing of us all to fall on him. Loved ones, we need to pray, um, especially when you get mad with somebody. Well, just show him, Lord. Just show him. Well, I know sometimes when I pray like that, that's not, oh, Lord, show him your grace and your kindness and your mercy. 
It's like, Lord, why don't you kill him and send him to hell? That'll show him. <laughs> well, I hope I don't, I hope I'm exaggerating, but you know what? I, I, I have learned, it's like somebody asked A.W. Tozier, I've prayed for my child. They won't come to the Lord. They won't do that. He said, have you done this? They said, yes. Have you done this? They said, yes. Do you pray regularly? Yes, every day. And they answered yes to everything. A.W. Tozier looked at him and said, then there's only one thing that you've forgotten. And they said, what is it? He said, tears. Tears. You see, A.W. Tozier understood we can have all the right programs and we can have all the right answers and we can be just as straight as a gun barrel theologically, but just as deadly as one because of our attitude. You see, we need to pray. When I pray for the lost, I, 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 in particular, I say, Lord, open his eyes, open her eyes to the sin in their life and let them know they need a savior. Because until somebody knows they need a savior, we're viewed as mean-spirited people. We, we, we act as though, I don't know any better way of putting it, we act as though everybody has our level of understanding and they're just resisting. And it may not be that they're resisting, it may be that they don't understand. And so we need to pray for them instead of against them. We need to pray for them instead of about them. That's why most of uh, well, not most, a lot of Christian prayers for the government and our government leaders are ineffectual because we don't pray for them, we pray against them. I need a Savior. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all those who believe, there's no distinction. Why? Because all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Now, there are foundations, there are foundations. There's, this is four within the four. <laughs> the, the, the gospel hinges on these four facts as well. So I'm giving you several places where you can start. Number one, God is the loving creator and I am the, the chief of his creation. That's why abortion is more important than saving the Tennessee snail darter. I mean, if we can save a species of animals, we ought to. Bible says that the wise man cares for the life of his animals. If we can save the planet ecologically, we ought to. I don't know exactly what it means, but in the book of Revelation, part of God's judgment was against those that destroyed the earth. And we're not sure exactly what that means, but I think the planet needs to be treated well. But we're hypocrites. We're hypocrites if we think saving a bird and even saving the planet is moral equivalency with saving a child. It, 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 I, and, and again, you know, I've got two years, I've tried to walk a line that says, you know, you can have this view, you can have that view, still be a part of this church. We are unapologetically pro-life. We do not, we do not embrace abortion. We do not recognize that. So, well, some believe this and some believe that and both views are okay. They are not, they are not okay. Let me say it another way. Okay, they are not. And I, you can be a part of any party you want to be a part of, but stop trying to bring that garbage into the church and say there's room at the cross for every view and every belief. There's not. There's room for one view at the cross. 
and it's for repentance. And we're not going to change. We're not going to change because I've said it before and I'll say it one more time. Abortion is not a political issue. Abortion is a moral issue. Never is there a hint in scripture that the sacrificing of our children was, well, it's a problem, but it's not the problem. It was the breaking point for the captivity of Israel. It was the breaking point for the captivity of Judah. And the reason, one of the reasons the Samaritans were so hated is when they were brought into the land, they embraced, they, this is in Kings, they embraced the sacrifice of children to Molech. The, 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 the breaking point for judgment was always on the destruction of children. God is the loving creator and we are the apex of his creation. The second thing is that mankind fell into depravity through willful rebellion against God. It's called sin. Okay, we are the object of God's special creation, but we turned our back on him through Adam and Eve. And every one of us have been in rebellion. You say, well, pastor, that's not fair for me to have to suffer. If God had given me a chance, I'd have done better. I don't think so. And the reason I say that is there's not any of us that can go two minutes without some lapse. So I, the way I view it, Adam and Eve held out a lot longer than I ever would have. Here's number three. God sent Jesus to redeem mankind from the curse of sin. You see, he created us with great expectations. We rebelled against that great expectation and that rebellion is called sin. It brought a curse and it brought damnation. And God said, I will do something about it. I will send a, a redeemer and that redeemer is Jesus. And there are five things when, when, when a church, when a denomination, when a Christian starts denying these five things, I am very suspect of anything else that comes out of their mouth. Number one, Jesus is God. He wasn't the best man that ever lived, though he was the best man that ever lived. He wasn't what we're all destined to become, even though we are now joint heirs with Christ. Jesus was God. Um, books like the ones written by Dan Brown say uh, Jesus never claimed to be God, that that was something the church put on him 300 years later. Loved ones, if you read the gospel, nothing is more clear than the Pharisees said, we're do over and over, we're doing what we're doing, not because of these works, but we're doing what we're doing because you claim to be the son of God. And Jesus never backed away from that. He accepted worship that alone belongs to God. The title son of man was the title of Messiah, the very son of God. No, it, Jesus was God. It wasn't something the church came up with at the Nicene Council. Uh, it was something that they said, yes, of course he is God. It was something they recognized. Secondly, he was born of a virgin. Uh, I had a professor of a course one time said, it doesn't really matter if Jesus was born uh, of a virgin or if she was a prostitute to a drunken Roman soldier. The point is he lived a good life. Well, he did live a good life, but for theological reasons that we don't have time to go into today, we, that's a Christmas message. 
He was born of a virgin. That's not the big miracle though. The big miracle is that he lived a sinless life. Well over 30 years without a mistake, without a glitch, without having to walk something back. Sinless life. And he died a substitutionary death. He died for me. He died for you. He died for the whole world. And it wasn't that he deserved it. It's that we deserved it. And he paid the price. He was physically raised from the dead and ascended to heaven where he is seated at the right hand of the Father and he lives to make intercession for us. Any Jesus that is preached that is less than that is not the Jesus of the Bible. And here's the fourth thing. Salvation, that means forgiveness and redemption, is given to those who repent and accept Jesus as the payment for their sin. So he created us, we rebelled, he sent a redeemer, and if we accept the redeemer, we can be forgiven. That's the gospel. Now, I need a savior. Number two, the savior is Jesus. This is getting more and more important every year. He is not, uh, Christ is not the God among other gods. He is not just one uh, ascended master that is a way to heaven. No, we need to understand that Jesus makes a claim that, that uh, no other one makes. See, I was watching a TV show the other day and this couple was trading false compliments to each other. It sounded sweet, then they were just trying to eviscerate one another. It was kind of a contest. And it had been really nasty. And then one day the lady walks into work and says something that's really sweet. She says, I want you to know that you have the body of a Greek God. And he said, well, thank you. And then she said, oh, no, wait a minute. Buddha's not Greek. No, Jesus isn't one God among the many gods. Listen to what Acts 4.12 says. This was the preaching of the early church. There is salvation in no one else. There's no salvation in Buddha. There's no salvation in Muhammad. There's no salvation in Hinduism, Shintoism. There's no salvation in any other, in Confucianism. There's no salvation there. There's no salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among mankind by which we must be saved. John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. I've heard people say, well, you know, Jesus, he probably had a little inflated view of himself there. When he said that, well, let me tell you a bit, but, and, and they'll, they'll always qualify their, their blasphemy by saying this, but he was a good teacher and he was a good man. Let me tell you something. There's three possibilities about Jesus. When you read the story, number one is that he was a liar. He was an absolute liar. And I don't want to call liars good teachers. You never know when they're telling the truth. So he was either a liar or maybe he was a lunatic. I mean, making these claims, maybe he was just absolutely crazy. And you don't call crazy men good teachers. 
So you've only got really one other choice. If he wasn't a liar and he wasn't a lunatic, then probably the only real choice you have left is that he was Lord, is that he was Lord. And he is the Savior. Um, let's go to number three. Okay, I need a Savior. The Savior is Jesus. Number three, we need to understand that Jesus is alive. The same day, two of Jesus' followers were walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. Now, this is right after resurrection. As they walked along, they were talking about everything that had happened. As they talked and discussed these things, Jesus himself suddenly came and began walking with them. But God kept them from recognizing him. He asked them, what are you discussing so intently as you walk along? They stopped short, sadness written across their faces. Then one of them, Cleopas, replied, you must be the only person in Jerusalem who hasn't heard about all the things that have happened there the last few days. What things? Well, I love it when Jesus asks a question. He's really setting us up for something good. What things, Jesus asked? The things that happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth, they said. He was a prophet who did powerful miracles, and he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. But our leading priests and other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death, and they crucified him. We had hoped he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. This all happened three days ago. Then some women from our group of his followers were at his tomb early this morning, and they came back with an amazing report. They said that his body was missing, and they had seen angels who told them Jesus is alive. Some of our men ran out to see, and sure enough, his body was gone, just as the women had said. Then Jesus said to him, you foolish people. You find it so hard to believe all that the prophets wrote in scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering his glory? And then here's the greatest sermon, in my opinion, probably ever preached. Then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Boy, I'd love to hear that sermon. By this time, they were nearing Emmaus and the end of their journey. Jesus acted as if he were going on, but they begged him, stay the night with us since it's getting late. So he went home with them. As they sat down to eat, he took the bread and blessed it. Then he broke it and gave it to them. Oh, here's, here's where you pass from death to life. Here's where faith kicks in. This is where you no longer, I agree, or I think it's possible. Now it becomes your life. Suddenly their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And I'm going to finish reading, but loved ones, I got to tell you, your problem is not that you don't have intellectual ability. Our problem is not that we do not have a desire to believe. Our problem is that the Holy Spirit has to open our eyes. Now I do not hold to the doctrine that the Holy Spirit does not open the eyes of the condemned. I don't believe that. I believe whosoever will may come. I believe the door is open for whosoever will. I believe Jesus died for everyone. But at the same time, there is nobody that can grasp this without the help of the Holy Spirit. And at that moment, he disappeared. Can you believe it? We finally make progress and then the service ends. <laughs> or we transition from worship to preaching. or You know, we just... He disappears. They said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us 
as he talked with us on the road and explained the scriptures to us. And within the hour, they were on their way back to Jerusalem. There they found the 11 disciples. Now they just made this six or so mile walk and they get to eat a little bit. Now they're going right back. And the others who had gathered with them said, the Lord has really risen. He appeared to Peter. Then the two from Emmaus told their story of how Jesus had appeared to them as they were walking along the road and how they had recognized him as he was breaking the bread. And just as they were telling about it, Jesus himself was suddenly standing there among them. They're getting all of this stuff. And then they hear somebody say, that's right. And they turn around and it's Jesus. Peace be with you, he said. Now, let me tell you, this was, this is church. This is church where they are arguing for unbelief. This is church where they are embracing doubt. It wasn't a place of breakthrough, but thank God he doesn't give up on us. The whole group was startled and frightened, thinking they were seeing a ghost. Why are you frightened? He asked. Why are your hearts filled with doubt? Man, when we come together, our hearts shouldn't be filled with doubt, but that's the way it was in that first gathering. Look at my hands, look at my feet. You can see that it's really me. Touch me and make sure that I'm not a ghost because ghosts don't have bodies as you see that I do. And he showed them his hands and his feet. And what was their response? Revelation, grace-filled living. Oh, wait a minute. No, that's another verse. Here it is. Still, they stood there in disbelief. But I tell you, when you've come in contact with Jesus, you may be filled with, with, I mean, you may stand there in disbelief, but you can still be filled with joy and wonder. You, you, You don't have to get an intellectual grip on everything. Then he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? That's how we know he was a preacher. They gave him a piece of broiled fish and he ate it as they watched. He said, when I was with you before, I told you everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and in the Psalms must be fulfilled. This is what I told you. Why are you listening to that guy on the internet? Why are you sitting around the coffee table struggling with all your heart to make a case for unbelief? Why have you decided to fill your ears with words of fools and of unbelievers? Don't you remember what I said? And some of them may have remembered when he spoke to Mary and Martha. Do you believe these things? They wanted to go that way into their expectation or orthodoxy even. They wanted to go that way into blaming Jesus. And Jesus brought them back, right? back. Do you believe these? Do you believe this? Do you believe what you know about me to be true? Then, praise God, he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. And then he gave them this great promise of the Holy Spirit coming in fullness, which he did. Loved ones, I need a Savior. You need a Savior. And the only Savior is Jesus. I want you to know that Jesus is alive. And this is where we want to end. This is kind of bleeding out of number three to number four. Your mind and heart must be open to truth by the Holy Spirit. You see, God has designed everything about the kingdom to operate through faith. You say, well, no, I've, I've had things I could touch and feel. Yeah, but 
it's not discernible without faith. God could overpower us with evidence. He could easily overpower us with evidence, but he chooses his call, not ours. He says, I want there to be a response. Not that the response earns you salvation, but I want you to have the joy of response. Now, I want to tell you, when we were in high school, we were had our vocabulary words. One of them was kiss. And my buddy, we ended up going to college together, but his definition of kiss was something like, a kiss is a sound caused by the separation of lips joined in a concave fashion to express affection or emotion and ends with a smack. And I thought, I was kind of hoping for more than that. (laughs) And I remember in college a few years later, he said, you remember my definition in Ms. Hess's class? I said, I do. He said, I threw that out the window. (laughs) And I said, why? He said, I've been kissed. (laughs) You can understand something on a level, but it takes the spirit to kiss you with that truth. When he comes, he will convict the world of its sin and of God's righteousness and of the coming judgment. See, the gospel cannot even be understood. Now, I know they can't believe unless there's a preacher and the preacher can't, I mean, unless they hear and they can't hear unless there's a preacher and there can't be a preacher unless he's sent. I know that. We have our role. We have our part. But at the bottom line, whether it's me preaching or Billy Graham preaching or Justin preaching or you sharing the gospel across the table with a cup of coffee, something has to happen that breathes life into that person and it is the awareness of the Holy Spirit. There must be a supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. Now, let me wrap it up this way. Um, The indwelling spirit gives us the assurance. And I want to say this because I have felt because of events, because of the the difficulty in our society right now, because of the two, like a friend of mine said, two yucky years, we're struggling with assurance. And I personally in my life have not seen a time where people that have been saved for a long period of time have doubts about, am I saved? And loved ones, I don't believe you have to get saved every week. I don't believe you have to get saved again every time you commit an error or, or commit a sin. We've got to understand that being a new creature is being a new creature. And we may have lapses, but we don't have to get saved every week. We've got to, we'll talk about foot washing one day, spiritual foot washing, but he wants you to walk in assurance. But I want to tell you there are three assurances that he gives you. Now, every one of them, even though they're assurances, they're not proofs because they require faith. But they are things that God gives us whereby we can know that we're saved if we'll believe. And each one is more dynamic and more powerful than the other. Here's the first one. I have an external assurance. This is in your notes, right? 
Okay, I have an external assurance. I have something on the inside that bears witness that I have become a child of God. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers and sisters. Now that may sound, oh, pastor, anybody can love brothers and sisters. And I, I know, and that's what I say. This is the lowest level of assurance. But I think what John is saying and that things John writes in 1 John 3 are very, very practical and set in the local church setting. He said, we can know that we've passed from death to life because of the love we have for each other. We didn't have that before. Now, some people love without Jesus in their heart. Jesus said even tax collectors and Pharisees love those that love them. Just because you love doesn't mean you're right with God. But the indication here is that we love the whole family, even Cousin Eddie. We love everybody. When my pastor got saved, he said, the thing that kept me from Jesus so long, he said, is I had business dealings with people in the community. A lot of them had gotten saved in the church. A lot of them were members of the church. And he said, I went to church very reluctantly because I didn't like most of them. But he said, when I got up from the altar, giving my heart to the Lord, he said, I don't know that I felt any different other than I felt peace. But he said, I went from one to another giving them a hug. And he said, every hug I gave, he said, I didn't know what was happening at first. He said, a spark ignited. And it wasn't static electricity. He said, a spark ignited in my heart. And I realized, I love you. 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 John said the one that doesn't love remains in death. So if we're beginning to love, we've moved from death. And he said, I came to church with a bunch of people I didn't like and I left for lunch. Head over heels in love with every one of them. See, it's just one of the things God says, your relationship with your brothers and sisters in Christ reflect what has happened in your heart. But it's just an external assurance and, and it's on a lower level, but there's a higher level. I have not only an external assurance, but I have an internal assurance. The spirit himself testifies, or I think King James says, bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. In other words, now it's not just love that can wax and wane, but now there's something in me that I just know that I know that I know. You can go out today and buy a copy of Gray's Anatomy and you can read about livers and kidneys and spleens and all of this stuff and you can go through the table of contents, you can search the index and you'll never find this part in there, but every one of you has it. It's a knower. K-N-O-W-E-R. It's a knower. And of course, we, we know it's our spirit. But he says that the spirit himself, the Holy, this isn't something, because if I move away from the altar and, and say, oh, I love Ken, Ken can make me mad and I may question whether I love him. But there's a higher assurance. It's the Holy Spirit that's just bearing witness. You know, you know. You know, you know. And, and loved ones, there were times, there were times in my earliest Christian days when I didn't understand. I thought I had to get saved every time I made a mistake. That's maybe one reason my pastor loved me so much. He had one convert at least every week. 
But he pulled me aside after me coming forward for the altar call one day. And he said, he said, Brother Steve, I want to tell you something. And he explained to me the grace of God and the security of God. And he said, we all make mistakes, but you don't, you're not a sinner all over again every time you fail. And he explained it to me. And I want to tell you something. I was, oh, I don't know, probably middle school. But from that moment on, there's never been a moment. Oh, I knew I failed God. I knew that I had disobeyed God. But there's never been a moment in my life that I can remember since I was like middle school age where I didn't think that I was saved. I always felt that I was saved. I always had the assurance of salvation. And you can have that assurance too. It's the internal assurance. But when externals fail and whenever you're struggling with internal, there is something that is transcendent over all. It's an eternal assurance. And it is his word, his promise I've had this bubbling up in my heart all week. My words shall never pass away. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will never pass away. <laughs> and Paul said, if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And loved ones, I encourage you... It, it, I, I, I'm not, I'm not talking about somebody that's not sure if they're saved or, well, I, I think I love God, but I'm not really sure I did it right. Then go to somebody, come to the altar team in just a moment and say, this is what I did. Can I have confidence that I'm saved? Because sometimes we approach and we don't know all the ins and outs. I'm not talking to people that, have, uh, that are looking for light on a dark subject. But we have to stop wondering if God meant what he said. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness. And with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. I need a savior and that savior is Jesus. He ever lives. He ever lives to make intercession to God for those that come to God through him. And everything that we believe must be so energized by the spirit that whatever we face, I believe, I believe. Now that's a problem if you got a theology that doesn't believe there's ever any suffering or you have a theology that says you are such a wonderful prayer that God is bound and obligated to do what you say the way you say it. I can tell you, if that's your belief, you're going to have trouble the rest of your life. But I'm not talking about, in fact, that's the kind of faith that works well until the storm comes and then it collapses. I want you to know, loved ones, as we move to Easter, you can have a faith that says, I believe this. I believe this. He's told us this. And I love him. And don't be shaken by heresy that is making its run through the church. Church, church world is what I'm trying to say. I don't think heresy is making a run through our church, but... You probably know of people 
that they are so, they're, they're, they're like double-minded. They're like a ship tossed and turned. And they're always in a search for something better, for something deeper, for something more profound. And loved ones, I want to tell you, we need to be careful because in our, in our quest for the deep things of God, we can get into a bunch of other deep stuff. And it's not always of God. I want to caution you. Be careful about hidden codes in the Bible. Be careful about mysterious numbers in the Bible. I'm not saying there aren't types and symbols and there's not significance to numbers. But I want to tell you, I listen to some people and what they preach is a mysticism. It's not the gospel. It's just a mysticism. You that are prophets, you've got to learn to distinguish between things God shows you as an illustration and things that are, you know, a, a concrete reality. You say, well, how do we, how do we know what's what? I got a great idea. And that's get in the word. Read it. Learn it. Know it. Well, I better quit because y'all are looking like you're sweating. Father, we are ending this service and you've been so kind to us. Thank you for loving us the way you have and the way you do and ever shall. As altar team moves into place, please help us, Lord. Lord, we've been talking about fullness and we, we spent a couple of weeks talking about surviving spiritual assault. These are the times that try men's souls. They really are. And I, I know that the answer is in you. I know that the solution is in you. But Lord, help us to always be centered with your word. This is the way we'll end the service, both in Brown Chapel and here. We have ministry teams at the front. If you need prayer for anything, for healing, or you've got a problem, you need a miracle, come to these ministry teams. They'll be glad to pray with you, especially if you are here and you're not sure that Jesus is your Lord. I'm not judging you. I'm not saying you have to believe everything that this church believes or believe everything I believe to be saved. But if you're, if you're really not sure that you have eternal life, just tell these guys and gals when you come up here, say, I just want to be sure that I'm ready to meet God. They'll, they, they know how to pray with you. They'll, they'll help you. And they can, we've got some material they can give you to help you know how to live the Christian faith. If you're watching online, there's a number that'll be going up on the screen in just a moment if it's not already up. And there are people waiting right now to, to take your call. They'll pray with you. You can know that you pass from death into life. It's not a guessing game. You can know that you have passed from death to life. Would you stand with me? Father, as we enter Holy Week, let this be the most significant Holy Week of our lives. Continue to speak to us by the Holy Ghost. And Lord, don't let the devil take something that I may have said poorly and rob people of a blessing. If I said anything poorly or inadequately, forgive me. I trust they will forgive me. But let them latch on to your words and let us have assurance. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.